0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're continuing our series this morning on these seven capital sins called Deadly. Really appreciate Pastor Tim last week opening us up. I was not in town, was able to listen online, really challenged by his message before we look at the text today, just want to mention some things to, to pray for. Um, Karen Wistron, who's here, uh, TBC, lost her dad just a, a short time ago, and so we want to pray for her. We want to pray for Sarah Sewell as well, who lost her father yesterday, and then a young lady in our church named Natalie Allman lost her husband suddenly Friday night in his early 40s, so we want to lift up Natalie and her family, and then... Got word this morning that 17 missionaries in Haiti have been kidnapped. And so we want to be praying for their protection, their release, and safety. And just as we mentioned these things to pray for, and we'll pray for them in a moment, we love to ask the Lord to be our helper. And so on our website, tbc or org, you can go. There's a spot for prayer requests there. You can catch me or any other ministry leader, or elder, or welcome team member, or deacon we'd love to pray with you today if there's something that you'd want us to lift up. Let's go before the Lord. God, we humble ourselves before you. And Father, for these families who have experienced and are experiencing loss, God, we pray for your mercy, for your comfort, for your help for them. And God, we pray for these missionaries, God, that you would be with them that the ways that they've seen you faithful in the past would come to their mind today in this frightening situation and that you would bring them to freedom, protection, and safety. Lord, as we look at a hard topic today, a, a sin that we wrestle with and a sin we have to fight and a sin that Jesus died for and rose from the dead to give us power over God, do empower us by your spirit and give us ears to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today I get the pleasure of talking to you about gluttony. Uh, Who wants to preach on gluttony? I must be a glutton for punishment, right? I'm a little concerned that I've bitten off more than I could chew. I'll I'll, I'll see myself out. So we we laugh, but this is a hard topic. And Tim, Dave, and I, other staff members have read this book called Dangerous Virtues. And in the chapter on gluttony, the author, John Koestler, he begins it this way. He says, I've been bothered by my weight most of my life. As a child, I was heavy, a condition my mother euphemistically described as being big boned. I was so obsessed with the fear of being fat that even when I slimmed down in my adolescence, I didn't think of myself as thin, and I'm no longer thin. I'm still bothered. I'm not alone. According to some estimates, 45 million Americans go on a diet each year. In our weight conscious culture, you would think that we would have greater sensitivity to the sin the Bible calls gluttony. The truth is, most of us wouldn't recognize a glutton if he swallowed us whole. We certainly wouldn't be able to tell whether we are gluttons, and the mirror will not help us. That's because gluttony isn't really about one's weight. So you, you might hear this, and, and you might hear it and be relieved and think, oh, thank goodness we're not talking about lust again. That was difficult. Or you might think, oh, gosh, gluttony. And this just wave of shame comes over you because we live where we live. As Anne Lamott describes it, we live in the United States of advertising. So today, there might be a few categories of people that are in the room. And one is that when you heard the word gluttony, it's, oh, gosh, everybody's looking at me. I can't believe he's talking about this. Others of you, you might be 105 pounds and think, man, if these people knew what I eat, if they knew the struggle, if they knew how little or if they knew how much, then you might know better than anyone here what an oppressor perfectionism is. You might be one of those people who don't think you struggle. Well, let's get to another sin that I struggle with. What we're gonna find out as we go through these, these sins is that we're all impacted by all of them in some way, shape, or form. Or you might just be going, well, you can't tell me what to do. I'll eat whatever I want. You might judge people who do struggle with gluttony. Or you might just think it's not a big deal. But in reality, when Ezekiel talks about the sin of Sodom, he talks about gluttony rather than that more famous sin Well, what is gluttony, what is it not, and what does the Scripture say about it? Thomas Aquinas says gluttony is an inordinate desire for food. It's not desire for food, it's an inordinate desire for food, and that that really probably makes really good sense of gluttony because you think back to the first sin of gluttony. It was in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Here's this man and woman in perfect fellowship with God, and they can eat anything they want, except for the fruit of one tree and they saw that it was good it was tasty it looked good it was pleasing to the eyes and they would be like God they'd been told if you eat of this tree you'll die but they had an inordinate desire they ate anyway and the rest literally is human history it's an inordinate desire See, hunger isn't evil, but gluttony is sinful. Thirst isn't evil, but drunkenness is shameful. Sleep and sex are gifts from God, but slothfulness and immorality are sins that break his law and break his heart. So we're gonna look at one account in the life of Israel where God's people didn't trust him and their complaining did, in fact, break his heart. So Numbers chapter 11, verse one, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now there was rabble among them, they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. God has provided manna from heaven. It's falling. They're in the wilderness. He's rescued them from Egypt, opened up the sea. They've gone through on dry land. Their oppressors swallowed up. And then they didn't have food. They're in the wilderness. And so God rains manna down from heaven. The Hebrew word literally means there it is. You go out and it's fallen with the dew. And there it is. It's God's provision. They said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic, but now our strength is dried up. And look, there's nothing but all this manna. Don't you guys remember how great it was when we were enslaved? Now the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance was like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it. They ground it in hand mills. They beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like cake baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So Moses hears these people weeping and he is done with the complaining. So instead of talking to people, he talks to God and he goes, why did you give me this people? Why did you put me in charge of them? Well, I can't bear this burden. I didn't give birth to all these people, God. You told me to carry them like a mother carries a child in their bosom, to nurse them, to care for them. I can't care for them on my own. And so God says, I'm going to appoint elders who are going to help you. And the elders, they're 70, they're going to help Moses. These are good people. He says, you go out and say to the people, consecrate yourselves, verse 18, for tomorrow you're going to eat meat. You have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat, for it was better for us in Egypt... Therefore, the Lord will give you meat. You shall eat. Be careful what you ask for. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils. It becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? So that happens. They get meat. God sends quail to the outside of the camp. It's a cubit high. That's 18 inches high, spread all over. And everybody gathers 10 homers. So you start doing the math. And the daily portion for a month is 18 gallons of quail, which is a lot. And their inordinate desire for food Ends up in judgment. A wind from the Lord, verse 31, sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and it fell beside the camp within a day's journey. So they gathered this, but verse 33 says, while the meat was yet on their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Hunger is an evil, but gluttony is sinful. Well, before we dive into what gluttony is, let's talk just a little bit about what gluttony is not. Gluttony is not wanting to eat food that you enjoy. It's a good thing. There are people who take this passage and they would go, see, they had manna, but they wanted meat. God wants everyone to be vegetarian. That's not what this is teaching. You should only eat certain kinds of food. The reason you're a glutton is because of the kinds of food that you eat. But Timothy tells us everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. It's not wanting to eat food. It's not wanting to enjoy the food that you eat. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. One of the ways that we should enjoy him is through these amazing flavors that he has created. Gluttony is not obesity. It can be. But it's not always. So what's the heart of gluttony? What are the habits of gluttony? And how do we get healing from or help with gluttony? Well, the heart of gluttony is is to be not content. There was rabble among them who had a strong craving. God was providing for them in the wilderness. He was making it very obvious that he was providing for them. He was providing for them miraculously in ways they could not provide for themselves. But they weren't content. They weren't content. And they became ruled by their desire. See, the desire is not bad, but being ruled by it is. That's true of any desire. Tim talked to us about this last week when he looked in James 4, and it says we're carried away by our own desire. It's not the desire. It's our being carried away from it. It's the desire in the improper place, and then it becomes idolatry, so much so that we go, I want to be enslaved again, right? Right? And God says, if I'm not enough, I'll give you quail so much that it comes out. I'll just give you over to your own worship. Because God wasn't enough for the children of Israel. They didn't understand that life is more than food. Well, That was a problem that continued to be. The children of Israel worried and worried and worried about this thing In Jesus' day, people were worrying about it, so in the Sermon on the Mount, when he told them to have treasure in heaven, he says, don't have anxiety. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't let this rule you. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, for what you will eat or for what you'll drink, nor about your body, for what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's this inordinate desire for food that thinks God's not enough, God's not going to take care of me, God's not going to get me through this, and I've experienced it. I'm gonna share with you about that in just a minute. The heart of gluttony is a lack of trust in God. Frederick Beekner says it this way he says it's raiding the icebox to satisfy a spiritual need that's what the heart of gluttony is well what are the habits of gluttony what are the habits of gluttony we like to think of it as this one thing and there is this one thing of overeating that we'll talk about but first that's not all it is it, it can be an eating for delicacy only. And your gluttony can be that nothing is ever good enough for you. Nothing ever satisfies you. Nothing's ever right enough for you. It might be that in the restaurant, your toast is always too crunchy and at home, your bacon's not crunchy enough. I, I wouldn't want to be the waitress or the wife in that guy's life, right? But that can be it. That can be it. It can be that you spend a ridiculous amount of money on every meal that food is a luxury for you it can be that way you spend on food keeps you from being able to give for others or that you judge others that you you see someone with less money than you eating nice food and think i ought to be able to eat that but they can't afford that they shouldn't be doing that i'd never give that to poor people right it it can be that you're ruled by a daintiness so I, When we lived in another place, I remember a lady that was ruled by food just like she was ruled by fashion. She wanted her body to look a certain way, so much so that her lunch portion every day was one boiled egg. I would eat one boiled egg for lunch a day if I could eat a burger and fries with it, right? (laughs) But she got consumed with how she looked and she began to like how she looked. And I remember coming home as a young man, so holidays, and I pick up a stack of Christmas cards, and uh, and I'm, you know, I feel the cards like, oh my gosh, that's nice, that's a really good Christmas card, right? But I, I looked at their card, and literally this this person's wearing something you can see through on the card. I'm not exaggerating. See, she got consumed with what her body looked like, so it impacted food and impacted fashion. She was enslaved to who she wanted to be and her husband just didn't notice. He was so busy with work and, and the own things that he was doing. But one of her kids' teachers noticed and her enslavement to food became enslavement to flesh as her marriage dissolved. See, gluttony can take all kinds of forms and the danger of any sin pattern is when we lay aside self-control in one area of life, we become enslaved in all these areas of life and it happens faster than we can imagine. We say it often, sin takes you further than you wanna go, costs you more than you wanna pay and it keeps you longer than you wanna stay and gluttony can do that as well. Perhaps it's eating delicacy only, or perhaps it's eating with excess eagerness. Now, this can take two forms. One is that you're so ready and eager to eat that when you sit down at a meal, you don't wait for anybody else. You just begin to eat. You're so eager to take it in. You miss the fellowship. You miss the conversation. You're just thinking about the food. The other is legitimately the elephant in the room. It's, It's eating too much. It's eating to excess. This can be a problem for people with great metabolism. It can be a problem for people with regular metabolism. It can be a problem for people with awful metabolism. We eat and we want to make sure that we don't have too little. We treat it like it would be a sin for us to get up from the table. I'm just a touch hungry. I wonder if I'll be full in 10 minutes. I've never, ever wondered that. I sit down for a meal, and I wonder, am I going to be full? And about five bites after I am, I go, oh, yeah, I'm full now. That's great. Maybe you do that too. See, I think the key here is is this, that the grace of God should change every area of our life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. God calls us toward self-control. The Israelites were struggling with self-control, and so they got the quail, and they gathered, again, 18 gallons of daily portion. They gave themselves over to what they wanted, and so God said, yes, I'll give you over. Here's what this quail is going to look like It'll become loathsome to you. And some of you have a relationship with food that is loathsome. See, the Israelites forgot God. They forgot God. And I think what they forgot is something that we forget gluttony and all kinds of other desires. And it's a really simple point John Koestler makes. He says every desire we have doesn't need to be met, every appetite. Need not be satisfied. Every thirst doesn't need to be slaked. We can live happy and fulfilled lives without getting everything we desire. So here's Paul in a prison saying, I've learned the secret of being content with much or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live joyfully and satisfied without all of my appetites being satisfied, without all my desires being met, without all my thirst being slaked, without getting everything I desire. Another another way is maybe you sit down and eat with people, but you eat in a hurry. And I mean, this is me. I just shovel food in. And it's ironic because I really do think flavor is a great way to glorify God. He's made these unbelievable combinations throughout nature that are meant to satisfy us, they're meant to bless us, they're meant to be good for us. People have even figured out you can put syrup and bacon on Brussels sprouts and they'll taste good. And they do, it's amazing, right? But I just eat it so fast, it's just, uh, I don't want to preach on gluttony again in about 45 years, right? It's just awful, but it's what I do. Perhaps worse than just the rush is this, Gluttony disables us from tasting and seeing the goodness of God and what he's graciously provided for us to eat. There are people around the table with us often. That's the goodness of God. There are conversations to be had about the goods and the bads of the day, the potential goods and the bads of tomorrow, the little things of joy that we can talk about or pain that we can talk about or encouragement that we can talk about, the very essence of life. And even though I love flavor, I eat in a hurry. Well, how do we get healing from gluttony? How do we get rescue from it? I think we have to look for satisfaction in God. Isaiah tells Israel to do that. Jesus tells people to do that. In Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, God says to his people, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I'm going to satisfy you, he's saying to his people. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves with the richest of food. He's saying to his people, feast on me. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, my steadfast and sure love for David. We look for satisfaction in God. Well, Jesus says basically the same thing in John chapter 6 as Isaiah says in chapter 55. People come to him because he's fed 5,000 people He's multiplied this bread and these fishes and they're amazed. And in verse 26, when they come to him, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father has set his seal." So they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? He's already given them this bread. And then they said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They don't wanna talk about the quail, right? It's 1,500 years later and they don't bring that up. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We want this. We want to be satisfied. And then Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And if you come to me, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. He says, it's me. Food's a gift. It's one more way to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But food doesn't satisfy. You might think, Chase, this is great. You're telling me to come to Jesus. But it's so overwhelming. I've got all these habits. And I do too. I've got all these habits. I don't know how to. To break them and it's that you come to Jesus day by day by day so when you're hungry or angry or lonely or tired you have to preach to yourself by the power of the spirit that what you're looking for can only be found in Jesus I had to do that January 1st not January 1st because we eat well New Year's Day January 2nd 2013 I got on the scale and I weighed more than I ever had. I want to suck in even as I tell you that. And I thought, this is a problem. I want, if God gives me years, I want to grow old and interact with my kids and then my grandkids. I want to be able to minister well as long as I can. So in 2013, I purposed, I was going to eat responsibly. I was going to thank God for my food and think about it. I was going to exercise. And so I began to exercise and I began to run. And from January 2nd to the end of September 2013, I lost 35 pounds. And then came October. October 25th, almost midnight, my wife and I were in a town in East Texas, and we had gone there to adopt a little girl. And we got a phone call. Hours later the next morning, her birth parents were going to Um, Sign adoption papers, and she would be ours. But in that moment, they made this bold and beautiful and brave choice to parent, which was amazing and wonderful and incredibly devastating to us. Our world was rocked. And instead of leaning on Jesus, I began to lean on chips and salsa. And by God's grace, just a few weeks later, we got a phone call that we would adopt a baby, a gift from God who didn't sleep very well. And so then I began to get up with that baby some and eat a bit more. And then I had an aunt and uncle that had raised me the latter part of my childhood. Got a call in March that that aunt um, had metastatic liver cancer and she died 28 days later. And so from April of 2014 to October of 2014, I gained back 35 pounds. You gotta eat a lot to gain 35 pounds in six months. And I did, usually one in the morning. Sometimes it was chips and salsa. Sometimes it was half a bag of a family size sour cream and onion Lay's. I'd wash the grease off my hands in case I went in, put my hand on my wife's arm, she wouldn't know. Sometimes I'd chase it down with a couple of granola bars and man, it gave me comfort. Until it didn't. Until I really began to wrestle with my grief and that I was looking at something to satisfy me. Now, hear me, I'm not saying every time you go get a snack you're looking for satisfaction in that other than Jesus. I'm saying I was then and I still do that some and it just leads to emptiness that's what sin does it seems like it will satisfy us and it takes us further than we want to go it keeps us longer than we want to stay it costs us more than we want to pay and jesus is the bread of life who satisfies so what do we do what do we do Well, if we believe that Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies and that his bread, his body was the bread given for the life of the world, he died for our sins, rose from the dead to give us new life, then we have to own our sin. We have to trust in him. We have to own the sin of gluttony and then we've got to confess the sin of gluttony. That's why we love small groups at TBC because they should be a safe, a kind, a caring place for us to speak about our struggles and get along the way, with friends that struggle just like we do. And then we have to die to our sin of gluttony. Well, listen, if you don't look to Jesus for satisfaction, you will not die to the sin of gluttony. If you do, and if you find him faithful, then you will Application: How do we die to our sin of gluttony? I want to talk about four ways. Our, our ministry resident, Ryan Murphy, was really helpful as I talked about this application. Now, the first way is to fast. To fast, to say to Jesus, I long for you as much as my stomach is growling for this food. There's nothing better than you. Like we're about to sing, I really and deeply desire you. Fasting renews our mind as we feast on Jesus. Fasting deepens our fellowship with God, and then fasting exercises the muscle of trust. I read a story about a lady who had her tonsils taken out as a eighteen year old and she talked about the pain how how hard it was, how difficult it was, and she got pain meds from her doctor, and that helped for a little bit, but then the pain was still there she didn't feel like she could do anything or chew anything. And so she called the nurse and said, I need some more pain meds. And the nurse said, you don't need pain meds. You need chewing gum. You need to exercise these muscles. They're paralyzed by your own fear and by lack of use. And she said, I was mad. I was angry. I was frustrated. I got some gum. And in about 25 minutes, I was better. I began to exercise those muscles. Fasting exercises, the muscle of trust in God, of saying he's enough. Second, you have to pray. A couple of ways you have to pray. So you fast, and then second, you ask the Spirit to grow you in the spiritual fruit of self-control. God, I need your help, as we will need His help. Third, you ask God to grow you in gratitude for what's been provided. It's a call to be a better steward and appreciate the gifts of God. And then number four, I think we've got to learn to feast, but it's difficult to learn to feast in America because we feast every day, right? Feast is this really special time where you come together and enjoy others and food and drink and you celebrate. There were six feasts in Israel or seven feasts in Israel's life. We've got feast here. The problem is we feast every day or even when we say we're going to control our diets, we'll have a cheat day, so we feast every week, Right? But feasting is this set-apart time where we pause to recognize and remember the goodness of God. And as we enjoy food together, we enjoy one another and we enjoy Him. We could at least just think about maybe a few real and true feasts a year like Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, Mother's Day, Father's Day, National Son's Day, National Daughter's Day, National Take Your Pet to School Day, right? Surely we could come up with enough. We've got to learn how to feast again and really appreciate what God has provided. To do this, we've got to trust in God's grace and we're going to need his grace every day. The good news is, is that Jesus, like we'll sing, he knows our flaws, he's seen them all and he still calls us friend. So we've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. We've got to trust in him to satisfy us in ways that bread never can. So here's some things we're gonna deal with through this whole series. There's this deep and dark reality that our faith is gonna be tested in all of these matters. And I need to tell you something that if you heard the self-talk of the people around you this morning as you wrestle with gluttony, you'd understand that they're just as broken and bothered as you are. And each week we're going to do this, and it's going to be a different topic, but the same topic. We trust in ourselves. We hope in ourselves. We hope in something other than Jesus. But life in Christ is just this moment by moment with our own sin and the grace of God. And when we come to understand what God is like, here's what we're going to find out. He's way, way more compassionate company than the voices in our heads. It just is. And to, so to receive that compassion and grace, what we do is we feast on Jesus. We do it through his word, we do it through prayer, we do it through time together, and then we do it through the Lord's Supper. So that's what, that's what we're going to do. So if you'll grab your cups with your bread and juice, we're gonna remember this Jesus who satisfies So when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he gave them instructions, then he told them to examine themselves. So I want us to take a moment to examine ourselves, and whatever fear and shame and struggle you have, this is a great moment to just give it over to Jesus Christ. So take a moment to pray, to bow before the Lord, and then we'll partake together. God, we bow our lives before you and we pause to remember Jesus, the only one who can truly satisfy. So help us to die to ourselves and live to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul told the church in Corinth, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us. We thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. And God, we thank you that in all of our struggles and afflictions, there is nothing better than Jesus. He truly and deeply satisfies. He satisfies your wrath that belongs to us. And he satisfies the deepest needs and pains and sins and struggles that we have. He's our healer, and he's our helper, and there's nothing better than him. That's our confession today. In Jesus' name, amen.